A while back, I visited the British Museum in London. Everyone told me that it was the museum I had to go to during my time in London, and so, of course, I did. It might be worth mentioning that I also love museums. I love the stories they tell and the ones they don't tell, but the British Museum told me stories I wasn't prepared for. So, the British Museum is this huge 18th century building with marble colonnades in front, giant staircases, and imposingly high ceilings. As I entered the building, I felt like a tiny, insignificant ant with my 163 centimeters, crushed under the weight of this historic and cultural institution. When you've gone through the classically designed entrance, you enter into this light-filled courtyard with a huge glass ceiling and a circular building of modern design in the middle from where you go to find the exhibitions. If you go through the courtyard and then to the left, you enter into this huge room of Egyptian sculptures. And as you go through the rooms in this part of the museum, you go through room after room filled with archaeological treasures from all parts of the world, from virtually every era of human history. They have mummies, statues, clay pots, jewelry, bones, crowns, swords. I mean, these collections are invaluable, magnificent. But something doesn't sit right with me. Why are all these things in London? How did they come to be here? Who owns these things? Who has the right to tell their story? This is Clara, and you're listening to Collecting Histories, part of my senior thesis for a Bachelor of Arts at Minerva School's Akidjai. This is a bonus episode about who is entitled to tell a story and why. There's been a lot of talks lately about the ethics of Western museums keeping large collections of artifacts from previously colonized nations. Talks, or perhaps debates. One of those debates surrounds the Kohinoor Diamond. In the words of one of my favorite comedians, Yes, some in India are demanding the, re the return of the fabled Kohinoor Diamond, which was removed from India and presented to Queen Victoria in 1850 before being embedded in this elegant head sofa. Also known as the Queen Mother's Crown. But, but the British government is refusing to give that diamond up. So India wants back the diamond, which they claim belongs to them. The famous Kohinoor Diamond should be returned to India during Prime Minister Modi's UK visit this November. And Britain claims it belongs to the British Queen by virtue of the many years it's spent in her possession. There is, I think, clarity in the sincerity with which the Queen holds the crown jewels, all of them, in trust on behalf of the nation, has done for many generations, and future monarchs will continue to do so. Intuitively, I would tend to agree with India on this one. I mean, how could it belong to Britain? In my eyes, they have little claim on anything they currently do claim, but that's my post-colonially obsessed brain talking. So, when I thought some more about it, I was suddenly not so sure anymore. British officers, explorers, and civil servants certainly brought artifacts as well as lots of money back to Britain, and they didn't pay for most of it. Now, India is a sovereign power, and they're trying to reclaim many of those artifacts, maybe partly as a way of restoring treasures from the past, but perhaps mainly as a symbolic way of reclaiming power of their own history and legacy. That makes sense. Or does it? India wants the Kohinoor diamond back, 
the Greek wants their Pergamon, and Egypt their lost statues of old pharaohs, among other things. The British government does not seem thrilled about this. And look, in a way, you can understand why Britain does not want to give that diamond back. All our greatest possessions are stolen. <laughs> Tea, stolen. Uh, the Elgin marbles, let's say permanently borrowed. <laughs> the entire British Museum is basically an active crime scene. <laughs> and if we start giving back everything we took from the Empire, that building will basically be completely empty except for one portrait of Lord Alfred Tennyson and a pair of Gary Oldman's old running shorts. <laughs> and that can't happen. But Jen Oliver's amazing sense of humor and national self-deprecation aside, this made me think. So, India as a nation wants the Kohinoor diamond back, and Egypt as a nation wants their mummies. But when these objects were constructed or first found, neither India nor Egypt were the nations they are today. Egypt has time and time again renewed their calls for the Rosetta Stone, a stone which helped researchers to decode Egyptian hieroglyphs to be quote-unquote returned to Egypt. But when the Rosetta Stone was inscripted with its incredibly banal text about some decree passed in 196 BC, the area which today is called Egypt was under the Ptolemaic dynasty, a Greek-speaking kingdom of Macedonian origin. Today's Egypt is an Arabic-speaking republic whose main religion is Islam, a religion which only emerged in the 600s, way after the end of the Ptolemaic dynasty. Can the Ptolemaic kingdom really be called Egypt? It had its rule centered on soil, which today is counted as Egyptian, but shares little characteristics. And if it can't, would the quote-unquote return of the Rosetta Stone actually be a return? The Kohinoor diamond has a similar past. The first traces of its history can be found in the Mughal court, which had its roots in present-day Mongolia. Its official language was Persian, and the Mughal king ruled over an area covering most of northern India for 330 years, expanding their territory across nearly all of present-day India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and eastern Afghanistan. The Kohinoor enters the historical records in 1628, when the Mughal ruler officially orders himself a jeweled throne. The Kohinoor was then the star of the show, and placed at the head of the giant structure. A Persian invasion a hundred years later would bring the diamond to present-day Afghanistan, only to be brought back to India through decades of fighting by a Sikh ruler in 1813. In 1849, the British officials manipulated the young Punjabi ruler to legally amend it to the British, who a year later presented it to their queen, with whom it's stayed since. The idea of the Indian nation emerged in the 1880s, more than 20 years after the diamond had left India, and the sovereignty of the nation was not realized until 1947. Can the Kohinoor really be Indian? I mean, the diamond has also been claimed by Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iran, and this just complicates things further. So whose are they then? Who can claim to be the true owner of the Rosetta Stone and the Kohinoor? I'm by no means justifying colonialism and the looting of colonies by colonial and neocolonial nations, but I can't stop thinking about this, and I think it's a question worth asking. Because the more I think about it, this thing of entitlement just gets more and more complicated. Like, how do we determine who is entitled to the Kohinoor or the Rosetta Stone? Where does entitlement come from? What is entitlement?
The Oxford Dictionary defines entitlement as the fact of having the right to something, and lists right, prerogative, claim, title, license, and permission as its synonyms. But who decides who has that right? Who grants someone entitlement? On what basis? Can a nation be the someone? One of the most influential works about nationalism ever written is Imagined Communities by Benedict Anderson. He argues that a nation is an imagined political community and imagined as both inherently limited and sovereign. It's imagined because the members of even the smallest nation will never know most of their fellow members, meet them, or even hear of them. Yet in the minds of each lives the image of their communion. He goes on to explaining why it's a community limited and sovereign, but let's for now focus on the imagined part. Anderson argues that the nation is imagined and constructed in the minds of the people who embody it, its members. This imagined unit then manifests itself physically in the form of borders, national territories, languages, religions, skin colors, cultural practices, etc. There's no set recipe for what a nation defines as its essence. It really varies depending on what the community and its leaders see and define as important to them, and that fluctuates over time and space. Can such a lofty concept really be entitled to physical objects? Or is the nation just a better sounding and more legitimized name for the individuals within it? When India wants the Kohinoor back, is that actually just the individuals in power who want it back? Well, that can't be completely true, because it's not the political leaders who've argued for its return. Citizens, news channels, and academics have all expressed their collective claim of the diamond. But they claim it as a nation. Perhaps, and this is me thinking, this is because there's no individual in India presently alive who can argue that they have legal claim on the diamond. I mean, the diamond was signed over to the British by a Sikh ruler in 1849, whose family no longer is in power, and no one seems to argue for the return of the diamond to their descendants, whoever they are. They want it back for the nation. And so, perhaps this is because the nation seems to be this all-encompassing, historically solid and legitimate unit which can claim things. But then again, India as a nation didn't exist when it was last on Indian soil. So how can it be India's? Since this thought first popped up in my head, it's come to mean much more to me, and surely it's made my life more complicated than it perhaps had to be. I realized that this entitlement thing extends past the entitlement of physical object. Entitlement is claimed with stories, narratives, perspectives, dresses, culture, languages, songs, everything. I mean, cultural appropriation is an expression of feelings of entitlement. The feelings of entitlement come from somewhere, and it's not always the nation, but can be school affiliation, family bonds, or mother tongue. Something that a lot of people argue is inherent to Swedish culture is meatballs, as menial and dumb as that sounds. Now, I don't feel particularly strongly about the distribution and cooking of meatballs around the world, nor am I completely sure that they actually stem from Sweden, but I could argue that my grandma's recipe for meatballs is something that I am entitled to, a statement indicating that there are people who are not entitled to it. What is this potential sense of entitlement based on? National belonging, perhaps? Familiar protection, for sure? More abstractly, I could feel entitled to the Swedish language? 
phrases like lagom, fika, and only feel I want to share those with people I consider to be part of my Swedish community. Even more abstract would be the sense of entitlement to tell the story of the Vikings, a story which has been written, rewritten, and differently written from different parts of the world. Britain tends to write about them as barbaric invaders, whereas Swedish literature these days tends to describe them from the perspective of their social structure and values. I do feel a bit entitled to tell their story, to criticize them, perhaps. I've read a lot about them, and one could say that I care about how they're portrayed since in some situations their portrayal points back to me for some reason. So, one could potentially say that I have more right to tell the story of the Vikings than Anda, my American friend, since I grew up in Sweden, one of three nations that claim the Vikings as part of their national legacy. But if Anda doesn't have the right to tell that story, does that mean I don't have the right to tell another story? A story that is not mine? That's what I felt when I started writing the episode about the United States. I had thoughts that I wanted to share, analysis and patterns I saw within the research I did and the perspectives I was told, but once I sat down to write them, I started to doubt myself. Did I have the right to make these arguments? Was I entitled to interpret this story, the story of the United States, or at least one of them? After all, I am not American. I only lived there for one year, and everything I know about its culture, politics, and history came from other people. I had no personal experience I could defend me with if someone came and told me I had no right to say the things I was about to say. These are real fears, and thoughts that I had. I spent many hours thinking of the best way forward. I ended up taking the cowardly route, let my friends do the talking through interviews. Perhaps that was for the best, but when the episode was finished, I couldn't shake the feeling of me having overstepped my rights somehow, crossed the invisible line of what was appropriate for me to say or do. I asked Anda if she thought I had the right to interpret American history, and she told me she thought so. And yet, she didn't feel like she had the right to tell and interpret the histories of Native Americans and Black people in the United States. She felt she was entitled to tell and criticize the story she was taught in school, which was mainly told through the actions of white men, and to some extent, I feel the entitlement to criticize that story as well. Is that because I'm white? Do I feel entitled to that because of my skin color? But I'm not American, and some other people might think that I'm not entitled to criticize it because of that. But if I would have grown up in the US, gone to American schools, spoken English as my mother tongue, but not an American citizen, would I then be entitled to criticize it? Some would likely say no, I'm not American enough. Honestly, I see no way out of this question. It doesn't matter how much I try to strip the question to its essence, look at it from different angles, different scenarios, I still don't know. Every scenario is different, requires different characteristics to qualify for entitlement, but as soon as I get to an answer there, someone else thinks differently. There seems to be no answers, or rather, many different contradictory and impossible answers. As I find is often the case when nations come up in conversations. They're complicated. People tend to get hurt. And so, I keep coming back to the same questions.
who is entitled to tell a story? Where does entitlement come from? When do we know we're entitled to tell a story? Who's our stories? Who's our national objects? Who can sing patriotic songs prayed to national symbols? Aye, if only I knew. You've been listening to Collecting Histories and me, Clara Erickson. For future reading, bibliographies, and some cool graphics, visit our website, collectinghistories.com. This season is part of my capstone project for a Bachelor of Arts at Minerva Schools at KGI. Thanks to Professor Grace Woodsbucket, my advisor, for her invaluable feedback and support. Thanks to Nick for helping me with social media, and to Barbara for not disturbing me in the bathroom. A bibliography of works I used for this episode, along with music and sound credits, is available on the website. See you next week for a dive into an example of the first national narrative for a country which I have a lot of thoughts and opinions about.